Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 151, Offa and Acceptance. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thank you very much to James, Alex, and Richard for signing up already. And here's a sample of what we're talking about over on the members' feed right now. Here's where we get a sense of how limited and unworldly Bede was. He didn't know much about anywhere outside of his little rainy slice of heaven. Even Ireland, which he called Hibernia, was something of a mystery to him. And based upon the way he writes about it, it's highly unlikely that he ever even made it to Ireland. For example, he believed that Ireland lay far to the south of Britain, near Spain. Not only that, but he believed that Ireland was a haven of mild weather and temperate climes, warmer and drier than Britain, where no one even bothered to make stalls for their cattle in winter because of how balmy it was, and how there was no need to make hay in the summer. Whatever Britain had, Ireland had it, but better. Britain had fish? That's great. Ireland had better fish. And don't even get beads started on the Irish deer and goats. Those were the absolute tits. Ireland was some sort of semi-mythical land to bead. And that magic infused everything that came from it. For example, he believed that anything from Ireland was effective at curing poison. And he wrote of how scrapings from Irish books could be immersed in water. And then that water would work as a cure for snake bites. Sort of like medieval homeopathy, I guess. If you'd like to learn more about what Bede thought of Pictland, Ireland, and elsewhere, you can sign up for membership over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Alright, where do we leave off? Well, we had a new Archbishop of Canterbury, a guy named Jambert. King Offa of Mercia was on the rise. Kent was in decline. And the minor kingdoms were being brought to heel by, you guessed it, King Offa of Mercia. Not only that, but Offa appears to have been involved in the selection of that same Archbishop of Canterbury. Everything was coming up Offa. And actually, when we look at the charters from 757 and 770, we see that Offa was confirming Sussex charters, so basically he was busy acting as the overlord of Sussex. Well, probably. But that's not entirely fair because it isn't absolutely confirmed. He might not have been acting as the overlord of the South Saxons. For example, if Donald Trump started telling people that the BHP was the best, classiest, most luxurious podcast in history, that wouldn't make him my overlord. So, as some historians have pointed out, the confirmations by Offa could be mere posturing. However, that is a long shot, and his presence in the charters is highly suggestive that he was ruling over the South Saxons. But it looks like that rule wasn't absolute, because we're told that in 771, Offa had to muster his war bands and march to battle. It seems that the men of Hastings, yeah, that Hastings, were rambunctious and needed to be put down. Luckily for Mercia, subduing his rivals was one of the things that Offa did best, and we're told that he quickly crushed them. At least, we think he did. Because within a year, we have Offa once again granting lands and charters. Further, it looks like the South Saxon rebellion resulted in a demotion of their dynasty. Because we have records where we have King Offa and King Egbert II of Kent, and also King Chinewulf of Wessex present. 
And while the leaders of the South Saxons were also there, they were simply described as dukes. That's actually a big deal, and there's a lot of information packed into that quick summary. Basically, what we're seeing in these records and charters is that while Kent was clearly being dominated by Mercia, they were still allowed to maintain their status as a kingdom. Egbert II continued to rule. He was just ruling under the auspices of Offa. Now, Wessex is something of a tougher nut to crack, because while King Chinewulf was present at the court, there are no indications that Wessex was ever dominated by Mercia during the reign of Offa. So, is this a sign that he was subject to Mercia, or was he merely there on his own accord? Chinewulf might have been there simply as a courtesy, and he was powerful in his own right, likely having recovered much of the West Saxon lands that had been lost to King Aethelbald of Mercia. And he was recognized as king in Berkshire, North Wiltshire, Hampshire, and Wessex beyond Selwood. Further, even in the records of this court, Chinwolf had the title of king, which could suggest his independence, though Egbert II was also a king, and no one would say he was independent. So it really is tough to say what was going on there. But things get really interesting when we get to the Dukes of Sussex. A dukes is basically a local lord, like a thane. And the fact that the South Saxons carried that title rather than king is rather stunning, especially since at least one of those dukes was listed in earlier charters as a king. And that suggests that while Kent was being ruled as a sub-kingdom, and who knows what was going on with Wessex, the South Saxons were completely annexed by Mercia. That fight in 771 might have given Offa the justification he needed to just take the lands for himself. And if King Chinewulf of Wessex wasn't Offa's man, and like I said, there aren't any indications in the record that he was, that might have been a bit of a problem for him. After all, Sussex was right on the eastern border of his kingdom. And Kent, despite the fact that they were subdued by Mercia, might also have been unhappy about this, since Sussex was also on their border. So things were getting pretty ugly, and there's a lot of political wrangling going on, it looks like. And you thought that talking about land charters was going to be boring. But let's take a break for a minute and talk about what was happening across the channel. The Kingdom of the Franks hasn't been all that important to our story so far. But it's been there for quite a while. Right at the end of the 5th century, it was founded by Clovis. And we've been seeing its influence upon Britain since at least the late 6th century, with Kent modeling itself on the Franks, and even intermarrying with their royal dynasty. When the Anglo-Saxons were converted, the Franks were one of the groups that the Pope wanted involved. When trade began to flourish, the Franks were on it. For as long as we've been talking about the Anglo-Saxon era, the Franks have been there, like a cool older brother. And speaking of cool older brothers, several years earlier, the king of the Franks died, and his two sons... Charles and Carloman split the enormous kingdom between them, with the eldest, King Charles, ruling over the outer parts, largely the bits bordering on the sea, and the younger, King Carloman, ruling over the inner bits. There was just one problem with the plan. They did not get along. And really, this is one of those moments in history that you think that someone would have benefited from looking into the past. And in the case of Francia, they would not have had to look all that far back. Charles's father, Pepin, co-ruled Francia with his brother for a while, and it was not exactly a rousing success of brotherly love and harmony. 
But apparently, King Pepin and his nobles didn't consider that when deciding what to do when he died. Because here we are in a remarkably similar situation with Carloman and Charles. Robert Collins suggests that the issue between the brothers might have been over who ruled Aquitaine. The short version is that Aquitaine looks like it was supposed to be Carloman's land. But then there was a rebellion in Francia, and in the course of suppressing it, Charles's forces marched into Aquitaine. And then they stayed there. So, that's not very good. He also argues that there was an alliance, possibly put together by their own mother, to encircle Carloman and remove him from power, thus uniting the kingdom once again. Worst mother ever. Or best, if you're Chuck. I'm not going to get into all the ins and outs of this because this isn't the Frankish History Podcast, but what's important to us is that in December 771, King Carloman and King Charles looked like they were about to go to war. It was getting bad over there. And then suddenly, King Carloman died. That's convenient. And before you say, hey... That's pretty suspicious, and I've been watching a lot of Game of Thrones. I bet Charles had something to do with that. Let me point a few facts out to you. One, the predominant story of Carloman's death is that it was due to a nosebleed. Two, immediately following the death, Charles seized the throne and united Francia under his own rule. And three, he passed over Carloman's two sons in order to do so. Okay, that does look a bit fishy. And I'm sure Charles was out there looking for the real killer, and maybe writing a book on what he would have done if he did it. But if he wanted to be known as Charles the Great, sacrifices probably had to be made. And upon uniting the kingdom, he immediately went about continuing his father's work and expanding Frankish power and influence. And in just a couple years, he had conquered the Lombard kingdom, which held most of Italy and was playing a bit rough with the papacy. Needless to say, this made Charles the Great, who we're going to be calling Charlemagne from now on, rather popular with the church. Meanwhile, back in Britain, Northumbria was having some issues. But of course they were, right? Okay, so do you remember from the last episode how there was a lot of dynastic shuffling going on in the north, with various families warring over the throne? Well, I might need to be more specific than that, since that's largely Northumbria for the last year or so in the podcast. So last week, we spoke about how Northumbria had a pretty good king, Aidbert, who entered a monastery and handed the throne over to his son, Oswulf, only to see King Oswulf murdered by his own bodyguards and retinue, and a new family seize the throne in the form of Aethelwald Maul. And then, after a little while, the Northumbrian nobles got together and told Aethelwald that no one liked him, and that he would have to enter a monastery because Alcred, who claimed to be from the line of Ida, was taking the throne. So, by the end of the last episode, we had the line of Ida back on the throne. Sort of. He said he was the descendant of a son of Ida, who we'd never heard of before this. Well, after nine years of rule, the families of Northumbria might have realized that King Alcred was full of it, and there wasn't an Adric son of Ida. Though chances are what really happened is that the allies of the deposed King Aethelwald Maul were just maneuvering behind the scenes and decided it was time for Alcred to go. So we're told that in 774, King Alcred was ousted and possibly exiled in a palace coup. And Aethelred, son of Aethelwald Maul, took the throne of Northumbria. So that family was back. However... 
This is Northumbria we're talking about, so don't assume that everyone was on board with this change, because they weren't. And we hear of a series of assassinations that immediately followed Aethelred taking the throne, which has led some to suspect that this was heavily political and that King Aethelred had a hand in it, possibly hunting down those who had dethroned his father. Oh, Northumbria. But this situation actually highlights an interesting shift in English culture that's occurring. Regnal power, not just in Northumbria, but also in Mercia and probably Wessex, Kent, East Anglia, and elsewhere, was rapidly coming up for grabs. No longer was it being dominated by single families, like Oswiu or Penda's families. But now you had many families with equally strong claims to the throne vying for the crown and killing each other over it. That's why we see Northumbria racked by internal violence, with five families butchering each other, and who knows how many lesser nobles and subjects being killed in these palace intrigues. The trouble, in many cases, was that you needed royal blood to rule. But beyond that, you needed the support of the nobility. As these families grew, the number of people who can make a claim to the throne based upon their royal blood grew as well. There were just too many valid claims. And as Dumville points out, quote, the eventual arbiter in matters of succession was the sword, end quote. The issue with murder-based politics is that you can end up with individuals with dubious claims but strong military support claiming the throne while those on the direct line of succession were getting ousted despite their blood link. And that's pretty much what was happening. And due to what looks like an accidental mix of cultures and laws, we have a situation where royal murders are almost encouraged, and the resulting blood feuds were damn near impossible to stop. Yeah, we're back to blood feuds. And some of you might be thinking that this was exactly what the Ware Guilds were meant to stop. The notion being that a family could be monetarily compensated for murder, so there would be no need for strike back, right? Well, that was the idea but it clearly wasn't doing a good job. And actually, despite the best intentions of those who put the Ware Guild rules in place, it turns out that they weren't that great for society. It might seem counterintuitive, but the attempt to stop blood feuds in the English kingdoms really was not that great of an idea. At the very least, the way they went about trying to stop them wasn't good. Now, from our modern perspective, it's easy to say that blood feuds are bad but it really isn't all that black and white. For the English, their cultural emphasis on blood feuds promoted a certain degree of stability, since the possibility of retributive murder was one hell of a deterrent. Sure, Unferth is annoying, and he did say some awful things about your mother, and he also sucks at fighting, so you know you can take him. But his brother is a member of the Werod, and will probably kill you before you know what's happening so maybe you should just let Umferth's comments slide. At its best, that's what the English blood feuding culture could provide. Naturally, for it to work like that, it relied upon you having a family that was respected or feared. And once revenge killings started, they really could get out of hand. So it wasn't perfect, but at its core, it did have a deterrent effect. And then they introduced a wear guild system. You can see where I'm going with this, can't you? Rather than stopping all blood feuds, it had the odd effect of practically giving the wealthy a free pass on murder. With blood feuds, even the richest were in threat. But in a were guild system, if you're wealthy enough, you can kill without much fear. 
especially now that we've got those incredibly rich families. Murder was becoming something that the wealthy could just afford, like HBO. With that in mind, imagine yourself as a noble in Middle Ages Northumbria. If you're ruthless, and you know you'll get the crown at the end of it, why not pay the money, kill the king, and just get it done, you know? I mean, if you want to talk about the privileges of the wealthy, the ability to OJ your way to the throne is definitely one of them. And can you imagine a culture like that? Like, if Biggie gunned down Tupac, then tossed a 50 onto his body and just casually walked away, and everybody thought, alright, that's fair. It's crazy, right? Well, even if it started that way, no one likes to be hunted. And so it's looking like the wealthy families, knowing that they could afford it, were sliding back into the old blood-feuding ways. So weirdly, the system we have appears to be promoting royal murders, which is leading to a resurgence of blood feuds at the highest level of society, while also preventing murder at the lowest levels because it was just too damn expensive. Weird, right? It explains why we're starting to run out of nobles. These toffs needed a hobby, or at least a different hobby. Like I said, this was pretty much happening all over the Heptarchy, but Northumbria really did perfect it. So that's what's going on. Meanwhile, down in the south, they had a whole different problem. For quite some time now, Kent has been ruled as a sub-kingdom of Mercia. It's hard to know exactly what was going on in there because of how poor our records are, but King Habert of Kent, the king that Offa likely installed on the throne, had disappeared by this point in history. And some scholars believe that he might have died on or slightly before 776. If that's the case, Mercia might have been left with few friends in Kent. And while Offa appears to have had a hand in selecting J.M. Burt as the Archbishop of Canterbury, it's thought that the Archbishop was starting to chafe at the Mercian presence in Kent. So things were getting tense down there. And in 776, we're told that the men of Kent fought the Mercians at Otford, meaning that they probably rebelled against Offa's control, possibly with the encouragement of Archbishop J.M. Burt of Canterbury. Now, whether this battle was the result of the death of co-king Habert of Kent or due to Kentish Mercian politics is a matter of dispute. No one's really sure about it. Kirby suggests that this battle might have happened due to Mercian interference in matters considered to be within the Kentish sphere of influence. For example, one potential point of conflict between the two kingdoms could have been the Mercian annexation of Sussex. Kent had long had interest in Sussex. So that might have been the spark, but it's something we'll probably never know. Something else we don't know for sure is who won. Some historians consider it to be a Mercian victory, because Offa was something of a badass, but that's hardly clear from the record. No victor is mentioned. And looking at the charters, it doesn't appear that Offa exercised any authority in Kent for the ten years following that battle. And that's not due to a lack of charters. We have plenty of charters, but in them, we see the King of Kent granting lands without any mention of Offa. And that's rather telling. Further, there are indications that Sussex might have also been free from mercy and domination for a while following the battle. So this looks very much like it might have been a Kentish victory. And that's tough for Offa. He must have known that he was on bad terms with Kent and the Archbishopric. And losing a battle is never a good thing for a king to endure. There have been coups over far less. 
So it looks like Offa did what bullies all throughout time have done after getting their butts kicked. He backed away from the guy who kicked his butt and found someone else to push around. And on 778, we're told that Offa and his Mercian warbands harried the Welsh kingdom of Devid. Way to go, tough guy. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, you name it. And you can find all of those at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.